but as we start our Advent series today, the title of our Advent series is Behold the Lamb of God. And you might be familiar with that phrase. It comes from the first chapter of the book of John, which is where we'll be, uh, be for our entire series of Advent, we will be looking at uh, the first portion of John in chapter 1. Looking at this, uh, this perspective of John, the gospel writer, of the entrance of Christ into the world, this thing that we celebrate each and every Christmas season, uh, we look now at the gospel of John as John is writing in anticipation and in joy and in uh, uh, excitement of what it is that has taken place uh, by Christ entering the world. And in the first 18 verses of John, which is where we'll be for the first three weeks of Advent, we see what is commonly called the prologue to John. We see one of the most theologically packed passages in all of Scripture. You will be hard-pressed to find another portion of Scripture that has more theology compressed into it than these 18 verses that comprise the prologue of John. And this is Uh, I think especially true of the first five verses, which we will be looking at today. So much theology is packed into these verses, specifically theology about Christ. And and my hope today as we uh, begin to unpack these these ideas, as we begin to unpack and, and pull away the layers of what it is that John is saying, of who it is that he's describing, that we will... Uh, become more and more and more amazed and enamored with the beauty of Christ Jesus. I think that is a, a natural thing that happens when we, the more we read the book of John. If, you've, if you haven't read the book of John in a while, and maybe you've never read it, I would encourage you to go and read the book of John. Because one thing that I find is that every time I come back to the book of John, my perspective of Christ, my, uh, the impact with which John writes of this Messiah that has come into the world and and what it is that Jesus does it just my picture of Jesus just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and this is true because of what John writes but it's also true the more we know of Christ the more we go grow in Christ the more amazing he seems to us especially when we read John's gospel it is very much like the example of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia when uh, in the second book Lucy sees Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, and she notices that he is bigger. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, well, that's because you've grown. Aslan being, uh, as we know, a symbol of Christ. And Lucy responds and says, it's not because you have grown? And he says, no, but every year that you grow, you see me as bigger. I think that's the way it is with Christ, that the more we grow in our understanding and our knowledge of Christ, the bigger and the grander and the more beautiful he becomes to us as we read his word. So let's start today with John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we will be reading through verse 5. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. 
Lord God, today as we open up your word to read it, to seek to understand it, Lord, as I seek to convey to uh, all of us here today what it is that you, by uh, your apostle John, have said to us, have uh, seeking to communicate to us, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to your word, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would open up uh, our eyes and our hearts to see and to understand your word. I pray also today, Lord, that as we begin our Advent series uh, in this season, Lord, in which we celebrate uh, and look with anticipation to uh, uh, the celebration in which you came into the world, Lord, I pray that, um, that we would, Lord, be stirred and, and brought to a sense of awe because of your majesty and because of who you are. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak through this time, that you would uh, surpass my weaknesses and my frailties, and Lord, that you would work in a supernatural way by the Holy Spirit to apply your word to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin and we dive into John chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 5, I want us to start by, by recognizing uh, something that really ought to strike us when we read this passage. And that is the fact that Jesus in this passage is described as the word. And this is point number one in our notes, if you're following along and taking notes. John introduces Christ to his readers as the word or the logos in the Greek, which seems weird to us, or at least it should seem weird to us if we are actually reading and seeking to understand. Because you start this passage in, in John, and John says, in the beginning was the Word, and then begins to talk about the Word as a person. This is not normal English way of speaking, right? It's weird. No, no one would, uh, would use this kind of language to describe a person. And so my hope is that, as you've read this, you've maybe thought and wondered, why, why is he using this phrase, uh, logos, which is translated the word, to describe Jesus. And we can gain some clarity and I think really be benefited when we uh, begin to understand the context, the meaning behind the use of this term that John is using. You see, the word logos was already in use in Greek language. It was not a new word that John was introducing or um, even a completely new and novel way of using the word. The classic Greek understanding of the word logos would be somewhat similar to our understanding of the word word. And it was the, the word logos meant a word or outward form by which the inward thought is, ex is expressed or made known. Uh, but it wasn't exactly like our understanding of word as a term. Logos was then further expanded in Greek philosophy to express the unknown creative force in nature. So this word logos is expanded to mean not simply the word conveying a thought, but actually imposing on it power and authority and ability and using this word logos to describe uh, the creator of the universe, or at least how things came into existence, but it very much carried with it a lot of nuance, a lot of um, mystery, a lot of not knowing, not understanding. This is much the concept that Paul was addressing 
in Acts chapter 17 when he spoke before the Areopagus. If you remember, Paul was speaking to the Greeks and he referenced an altar that he saw as he was coming into the town and the altar was dedicated to the unknown God. And Paul was, uh, was able to proclaim to the Greeks that this God that you don't know, the unknown God, the creator of the universe, the, the force and the power that controls and sustains and enables all things, he is known. He has made himself known. He can be known, namely in the person of Jesus Christ. The unknown God has become known, Paul proclaimed to them, and then began to uh, declare to them the beauties of the gospel and of the resurrection. So not only, though, did the Greeks have uh, a connection with this understanding of the word as being personified, but also the idea of the word of God being representative of God himself was an idea that was actually in accord with various Old Testament passages as well. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, the prophet Jeremiah writes this about his calling. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So here we see in Jeremiah that the word of God, he doesn't say that the Lord came to me. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. And then speaking of the word of the Lord says, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. I consecrated you. So this idea of personifying of the word, it even had an understanding in the Hebrew understanding as well. So the word logos that John uses to refer to Christ then is perfect. It's the perfect culmination or the fulfillment of both the Greek and Hebrew understandings of the word. And using that name, John was saying that Jesus is the full expression of what God has to say to the world. He is the one in whom and by whom God's mind and purposes towards the world find their full expression in Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me, the Logos, has seen the Father. This is John's dramatic way of introducing us to the subject of his writing, that is, Jesus Christ. But as I said before, even once we have a better understanding of the word logos, which is helpful when we read this passage and we should uh, at least have some sort of understanding of what John is doing when he uses this word, there's still a boatload of theology wrapped up even in these five verses, specifically theology pertaining to God the Son or what is commonly called Christology in, in theology. So let's get a little bit more into the text and look at some of these Christological doctrines that are presented by John in these five verses. He presents Christ as pre-existence. This is point number two. Starting off, we see the pre-existence of Christ. We see this right at the beginning in verse one, the first few words. In the beginning was the word. Now this should immediately strike a chord in our minds, right? This should immediately remind us of something. Because this harkens back and intentionally 
to Genesis chapter 1, the very opening two words of the Bible, in the beginning. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Now John is beginning his book in the very same way that Genesis chapter 1 is beginning. And we might think for a moment that John is a bad storyteller when we read this. Because I think we've probably all, we probably all know people that when they tell a story, offer like way more details than you really need. Does anyone know someone like that? Yeah? Yeah? My wife says she is one of those people. Yeah? Aaron's one of those people. There's, there's lots of people that are that way. So you, when you ask them a question like, oh, so how'd you come to be in Evansville? And they start the story with, well, it was 1975 and it was a rainy Tuesday. And you're like, oh gosh, I'm going to be here for a while. That's kind of the way it seems at first as John is beginning his book. That is, he is gonna, he's going to write about Jesus Christ. And so you'd think he might start with Mary and Joseph. You'd think he might start maybe in a very similar way to the other Gospels, maybe with Mary and Joseph, or, or perhaps with John, the forerunner, or maybe give a genealogy of Christ, right? But John doesn't do that. He starts his book in a very different way than the other Gospel writers. He says, in the beginning. Because the reality is that he's making is that that is really when the story of Christ, as far as we are concerned, finds its root, even though that's not the beginning of Christ, right? The book of Genesis didn't start, in the beginning there was a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. That would seem like a logical place to start a story, if it were a story like any other. But we know that the book of Genesis and the book of Scripture is not a story simply like any other. This book is the revelation of God himself to man. The reason the story of Genesis doesn't start with Adam and Eve is because that that is only when our story began, the story of humanity. But it's not when the story began. Therefore, Genesis starts in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. By starting with God before anything or anyone else existed gives us vital information about who God is, and it focuses the story rightly on his supremacy. That is the starting point for Scripture, is the supremacy, the power, the greatness of God, the Creator. And the reason the book of Genesis begins this way is the same reason the book of John's, John begins the way it does. Because it's speaking to who the subject of the book is, and it gives us a foundation and a picture of his greatness and his supremacy. Christ's greatness and his supremacy and his pre-existence is the starting point for John. You see, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem a couple thousand years ago, right? But the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, Christ, has always existed. He has no beginning, and consequently, he has no end. This builds upon the significance of who this person is that John is writing about. He's intentionally wanting us to have a big, giant view of Jesus Christ. It's building upon the significance of who he is. John is writing about one who has always been, as Jude says of Christ in the doxology of his book in the New Testament, before all time and now and forever. This Jesus of whom John is writing 
is no ordinary man, not by a long shot. And John insists that we see that right off the bat. And he builds upon this idea even more in the following phrases. We see, and this is point number three, he magnifies the deity of Christ. He goes on and says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. As John is saying that the word was with God and that the word was in the beginning with God, he is indicating an intimacy that the word, the logos, has with God the Father. He is, he is indicating a relationship there between this one that he is writing about, the logos, and God the Father. But in case there be any discrepancy or temptation to think that the logos was, uh, was another being of equal power with God, or perhaps even another God, as the Jehovah's Witness might say, John says it explicitly at the end of the verse. In verse 1, he says, the word was God. Indicating without a shadow of a doubt that the Logos, Jesus, the Christ, is God. That he is one with the Father. This obviously and additionally pointing us to the Trinity and the triune nature of the Godhead. And this is the point at which we get to, and we get there really fast, is in verse 1. Perhaps the most volatile claim that's made in the text, and really even all of Scripture. The claim that Jesus is God. This is a volatile and, vo and widely unwelcome claim in the world in John's day, but even still and in, in especially in our day. The, the idea that Jesus is God is vehemently opposed by the world. There are all kinds of uh, uh, documentaries, all kinds of uh, books and this and that that have been written in an effort to disprove this truth, that Jesus is God. But this really is the main point of John's gospel, I think. I would say, if, if I were to give a thesis statement to the gospel of John, I would say the thesis is, Jesus is God. Because over and over again through the book of John, he is, he is demonstrating this, both through what he says about Jesus, but also through how he writes what Jesus has done and what he has said. Over and over again, we see emphasized that Jesus is God. It's accurately been pointed out that, that each of the various gospels emphasizes various aspects of Christ and his ministry. Matthew emphasizes Christ's kingship. Mark emphasizes Christ's servanthood, and Luke emphasizes God's humanity, but John emphasizes God's, or Christ's godhood, his deity. This truth is so intensely, so vehemently imposed by the world because it has some very serious ramifications. When we begin to understand and begin to comprehend and recognize the truth that Jesus is God, we realize that the ramifications, the, the implications of this are massive. The implications of this relating to, say, Jesus' claims throughout Scripture. The ramifications of this when we consider the atonement. That when Christ died on the cross, God died on the cross. That God bore the wrath of God on our behalf. This 
This is a mind-blowing reality when we begin to comprehend the deity of Christ and what it means in the world today. And obviously, and perhaps the most significant reason why this would be denied by the world is because recognizing the deity of Christ means that we owe him our submission and that we owe him our obedience. And this is perhaps reason number one why the world is so quick to oppose this idea. That to confess that Jesus is God means that I owe him my allegiance. That I owe him my obedience. Not only that I owe it to him, but that to deny him that means that he rightfully deserves to pour his wrath out upon me. This is a reality that the world recognizes they must deny, they must suppress, they must keep down. Though it is not a truth that in keeping down or tamping out, you can in any way accurately and correctly deny or undo. The truth remains. The wrath of God is real. But John goes on to emphasize this point by demonstrating the power of Christ and the power that he has in light of this truth. Number four, the power of Christ. Verse number three in our text begins to uh, kind of in light of Christ's deity and who he is, demonstrate his power. In verse three, we read, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This passage along with Passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1.2, they help us to demonstrate the fact that the creative works of God the Father were carried out by the creative activity of God the Son, that he was active in creating all things. We see this, uh, we see especially demonstrated here the power of Christ, the power of that Christ has like no other being who exists who, or who has ever existed on this earth. Christ's sustaining and creating work is truly amazing, and it, is, uh, and it is difficult for us to even wrap our minds around and fathom. The fact that the, the one, Jesus Christ, who learned the carpenter's trade under Joseph was the creator of all things, was the creator of the world, the pre-incarnate Christ moved and worked to create everything, including the very wood that he would later use to create tables and building material. Isn't that wild? That would seem like a serious step down to me if I was Christ, like working with a plane and chisel to like carve this table when you literally created the wood that you're, that you're carving. And yet this is what the, the word of God reveals to us. That Christ, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, is now in human flesh. The same God who created and sustains all things passed through the birth canal of his own creation and lay helpless in a manger, relying on human beings to feed him and to care for him and to nurture him. Yet at the same time, still holding all things together by his power, as Colossians 1.17 tells us that by the power of Christ, all things hold together. And this is all true, even as Christ hung on a cross. Consider this. There was a, a theologian that, that pointed this out one time. I thought it was amazing. That Jesus Christ, as he was hung on the cross and the nails were being driven into his hands, even in that moment was sustaining and holding together all things, including the cross that he was nailed to and the nails that were holding him there and the thorns that were in his head. 
Even in that moment, he was the creator and sustainer of all things. This is the God of whom John writes. This is his power. This is the one that has come into the world. We see this demonstrated even more in verse chapter in verse 4. Point number 5 is life and light. Verse 4 then tells us that in him was life and the life was the light of men. The Bible tells us what is uh, produced by the world. The world can produce nothing lasting for us. Nothing lasting is produced by the world, only death. Romans 6, 20-23 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit did you get at that time? From the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what the world has to offer, and by the way, everyone who is separated from Christ as we once were, is of the world. And all that the world has to offer, all that it can do for us, is nothing lasting. It simply produces death. The end of being uh, a slave to the world, a slave to our sin, a slave to wickedness, is sin and death, and that's it. But Paul is demonstrating here in Romans chapter 6 what John is referencing in our passage today. John knows the same thing that the Apostle Paul knows, that life is not found in the world, only death, because the world is sinful, vile, wicked. But in Christ, the solution is found. In Christ, life is available. In Christ, death is crushed to death, and life is mine to live. When Jesus entered the world, we were given more than just a good role model. We were given more than just a rabbi, we were given the answer to man's greatest problem, namely death. Life is found in Christ. Christ himself makes this clear in John 14, 6, when he says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John goes on to describe Christ not only as the bringer of life, but also says that, he was the, li- that the life was the light of men. This, again, sets Christ in contrast to the world. For in the world, there is darkness. There is despair. There is sorrow. But in Christ, there is light. There is a a solution to the darkness. Just a few weeks ago, I went camping with my wife, Kaylee. It was her first time ever camping. And we had a great time, and it was awesome. But as we were sitting around the fire... Uh, at night before it was time to go to bed, we were just enjoying the, the fire and, and kind of being outside. What really is one of the most striking things, and if you've ever been in a forest, it's a very thick forest with a good overhang, uh, or maybe you've experienced this in a cave, if you go into a cave really far where there's no light. What really is, is somewhat ominous at times is just the intense darkness that is there, where you can't see anything. And I remember Kaylee commenting about how, man, it's kind of creepy to be out here at night. And I said, yeah, it is. You know, we could hear animals like walking around, around us, uh, which we're assuming were just deer. I think they probably were. But it's kind of creepy. 
And I told Kaylee, I said, you know what? I think it's creepy too. And even though a lot of guys deny it, I think every single guy in the world also thinks it's creepy to be out in the woods at night. A lot of them just deny it. But it's creepy. And at times, even the, in a place like that, when it's dark in the forest or, or in a cave, it can get to the point even where the darkness seems like it's just overwhelming. Where like you need a solution to this darkness because it's, it's just too much. And that is true in the world today also. There are times in our lives even, as Christians, when it seems like the darkness is almost too much. When pain and sorrow in this life seems to overwhelm us. When frustrations and evil that is done to us, whether in our workplace or in our communities or even in our own families, seems to be more than we can handle, more than we can bear. The fact is that Jesus is life and the life was the light of men. The solution to the darkness has entered the world. That is Jesus Christ. He is true light. He is the answer to the darkness. We don't have to be overwhelmed by the darkness. We don't have to sit in the darkness. We don't have to embrace it. Jesus Christ is our light. He is the antidote to the darkness. But why is all this important? As we kind of come to a close, I want to ask, why is all this important? Why is it that John goes through all this effort to deliver to us these, uh, these pieces of theology, these uh, theological concepts of Christ as he begins his book? My hope as I was preparing the sermon, as I was recognizing, man, there's a lot of, a lot of doctrine in here that I want to lay out for, uh, for the congregation, and, and I hope I've hopefully done that a little bit here today. But my hope is, is that you would leave today with more than just a list of doctrines and an and a understanding of, okay, Christ is preexistent, he's God, uh, he is true light, he is life. Okay, got it. You know, I okay, the word, I get it. My hope is that you would leave with more than just a list of doctrines or theologies in your brain, but rather that you would leave with something that you can apply to your life, leave with something saying, how does this apply to me? And I think John concludes this paragraph with something that we can absolutely take and apply to our lives. Because in verse 5, John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We have a new element now entering into our text. John has now uh, introduced conflict into the opening passage of his book. John acknowledges now that there is a conflict that exists. There is a spiritual warfare that is taking place between light and darkness. But John also says the good news that guess what? We know who wins. Man, what, what another great thing to introduce into the opening passage of your book. Hope. Because this truly is what John is introducing into this passage here. He is saying we have hope. Notice the change in writing form that John writes with here. Throughout the entire passage, verses 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then in verse 5, what does John say? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is indicating for his readers, both those people in John's day, but for us today also, that the light is still present and the light is still victorious and will always be victorious over the darkness. 
The final message that John leaves us with here in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, is a message of hope. In essence, this passage reminds us of why we lit this first candle. As Aaron reminded us, this candle represents hope. That we can have hope because Christ has entered into the scene. Christ has taken on flesh. All that we have just said, this amazing being, the Logos, the Word, Jesus, God Himself, the pre-existent, the light, the life, He has entered the world and has brought with him hope in his entering. He has entered the world and he has done so with the specific intent of pushing out darkness. Not temporarily, not a little bit, but completely and forever. For those who are in Christ, the darkness has no power over us. Death has no power over us. This is why Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Christ has produced for us hope, hope unlike any other, hope that is not found in the world, hope that the darkness will not prevail. This is why we celebrate. This is why we light the Advent candles. This is why Christmas means so much for Christians, more so than any other group, because it's not about Santa Claus. It's not about uh, a Christmas tree. It's not about all of that, frankly, nonsense. Nonsense I participate in, but it's nonsense. The message of Christmas is hope because Christ, the Logos, the light of the world, life has entered the world and brought us hope. And for that, we can say amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much. When we read of, or just who it is that entered the world, that God took on flesh, that he dwelt among us. Lord, it is mind-blowing. This pre-existent, all-powerful creator took on the form of man, came into the world by means of his own creation. Lord, this is an amazing reality that we can easily miss, that we can easily miss in this season, Lord, but even more so throughout the rest of the year. Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us for failing to see the magnitude of Christ, for failing to see his greatness and his awesomeness and his goodness and his grace and his compassion. Lord, I pray this Christmas season that you would produce in us greater awe, greater amazement, that we would see Christ as bigger and greater than we ever have before. And Lord, that we would rejoice today and throughout this season and throughout our lives because of the hope that entered the world when Christ took on flesh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.